I just, I don't have the time. I'm married, I got kids, I got a job, you know, I got things to do, I got a, I got a life now. I've got so I've got a life. Bill. I just don't, ha I don't have Let's the time. Down, Bill. <laughs> you hear that, right? I would sponsor people, but I don't have time. Okay. I don't really know where to start with this, except that, you know, I just get in my own experience, you know, um, I wake up in the morning at about five o'clock in the morning because I have a disabled wife and I have things I have to do before she wakes up so that I can keep my sanity. And I spend some time meditating and praying and sometimes I just screw around and play my guitar. And then I get my kids awake and I get them dressed and then I get them ready for school and then I break up their fights and then I wake up my wife and I get her dressed and then I go to work. And at work I talked about 20 alcoholics because we call each other all day long. And then maybe I'll meet somebody before a meeting, and then I go to a meeting. And I love that life. It's a full, rich life. But then during that course of the day, I'll talk to a guy that I sponsor who doesn't have a job yet. He doesn't have a girlfriend yet. He doesn't have anything. And I'll say, hey, did you go to that meeting we talked to? And he goes, uh, yeah, I was, I was real busy. I didn't have time. So it's relative. And I think really, the, the, Jay said to me a long time ago, it's a faith issue whether you have time or not. And to couch it in a, in a way that maybe some of you can understand, when we had our third child, my wife said, oh my God, we're not, we don't have the money for this. We don't have the time for this, to pay attention to a third child. And you know what? That child came and suddenly there was time. And it was God provided the time. God made the, the uh, hierarchy of my affairs line up so that I had time to nurture that child and to earn enough money to feed that child. But I'd rather catch it to you this way. If you get somebody that says they don't have time, my son and I like to play what kind of superpower would you like to have, okay? And he always wants to look through people's clothes, but he's a budding teenager. <laughs> and I want to read minds and all that. But what if somebody said to you, I can give you the superpower to raise the dead. I can make it so that you have the power to bring people back to life from death. Would you say to that person, I don't have time. <laughs> I'm sorry, there's a TV show on tonight, and my daughter has a soccer game, and my wife, blah, 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 and my job, blah, blah, blah. You'd say, hey, man, I can raise the dead. I'm going to spend an hour a day just raising the dead. And what I like to think about when I sit through this morning with Jay is that in 1930, two guys met, 1930 what, Jay? Five met in a little living room in Akron, Ohio, and talked to each other about their problem and the spiritual solution to that problem. And because of that, I'm alive. Because of that, you're alive. So this I don't have time thing is like, what is it that you do that's more important than raising the dead? You know, there are some people that shouldn't sponsor. You know, they're hanging outside the meeting, they're smoking cigarettes, they're drinking Red Bull, they're just, they're just, they're, they're not living righteous lives. They're not really doing stuff. You know, these people are, you know, they, they, they should not be out carrying the message. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> You 
we do these workshops and we'll ask a question, we'll do Q&A a lot, and one of the things that comes up is we'll, we'll make the statement, should everybody sponsor? And invariably, there's a bunch of hands that go up and go, no. There are some people that are dangerous, that they're spreading the disease, not the message. They shouldn't be sponsored. Well, how do I know that what you don't need is a shitty sponsor? How do I know? Who made me God you know, to determine who's a good sponsor, who's a bad sponsor, who should do the work, and who shouldn't? Jay loves to say uh, that the second half of the 11th step is not extra credit. I like to say the 12th step is not extra credit. It is the heart and soul of the program. It's the one job that all of us have to do. If we want to complete the steps, if we want to confront our defects of character, we will sponsor people and we'll run into every one of them. If we have the experience of one-on-one -on -one interaction with other alcoholics, that will change us more than any other single step will change us. I mean, one through nine is about 15% of the program. I mean, it's the basic sober 101. It's what we have to do in order to have a message that has some depth and weight. Now, the parking lot people, as I like to call them, the ones out in the parking lot that are drinking the Red Bulls and smoking one cigarette after another, and they're not hanging out in the meetings. You know, they're looking for her or him or doing whatever it is they do. The part, a lot of you may here have been parking lot people at one time or another. Maybe you're a parking lot person now, and it's just raining outside, and you felt like you should come in, you know. You know, welcome to the parking lot, people. You're welcome here. But you can't have any gumbo unless we, you know. Okay. <clears throat> How do I know that some guy, in order to get the pressure off when everybody's asking him if he has a sponsor, goes out to one of these parking lot guys <clears throat> and asks him to be a sponsor? And the parking lot guy doesn't want to look bad, so he says, oh, well, sure, I'd be happy to sponsor you. But he's freaked out because he doesn't know anything. How do I know that that won't motivate him to come into the room to pick some stuff up that he can pass on to this other guy? <clears throat> How do I know that that guy won't keep him moving so that this guy doesn't catch up to him? Maybe that'll be the motivation for him to finally get into the book, finally do some work. I've heard that story before. I mean, Jay told the story. <clears throat> 28 days sober, guy asked him to sponsor him. He goes to his sponsor, what'll I do? He says, well, show them what you know, essentially. You know, I've had guys ask me that question. Well, is it too soon for me? I haven't finished all the steps. And I, you better stay ahead of the guy. You know, it's a race now. <laughs> you know. Now, when I started sponsoring, I was probably, I was less than a year sober when the first guy asked me to sponsor him. And uh, being arrogant and pompous like I am, I figure I already knew it all. The truth is, when I look back on that, those guys taught me a lot. I mean, I've had guys ask me to sponsor them that have a depth of knowledge of the book much greater than mine. To this day, I have guys that I sponsor that are much more students of the big book. I think I'm pretty good, but these guys are just, they're academic. They remember stuff. I'm starting to forget a lot of it. You know, I need them to carry around shit for me. You know, I'll turn to the guy, what page was that? 42, right? 42. It's on page 42. You know? I do workshops. 
as we all have done for a, year, a lot of years now. And I get guys that have some time to come to the workshop. And, and we all work the steps together over a six-month period of time. And I've gotten over the idea of me being the facilitator now. I really consciously look for what they're going to bring to the table, what I'm going to learn from how they've worked the steps. And I think early on when you say you know, some people shouldn't sponsor, everybody should sponsor. It is the vehicle that will cause us to grow up emotionally more than any other exercise we do in AA. Yeah, you know, I I tried sponsoring some people. I, I sponsored, I think, like four guys, and they all drank, and I'm just not really good at this. You know, I don't... I just don't think I, I should sponsor people. Uh-oh. Why don't you just go sit down? Right. <laughs> don't give him a fork. We, want, we don't want him to have any sharp objects. That's the depth of his understanding. Um, so this thing about... Uh, I got sober listening to a guy by the name of Norm Alpe. And... Uh, if you if you want to have really fun, it's like it's kind of like classic rock and roll. You go to xaspeakers.org, and in the search you put Norm A, and there's this guy that just talks amazing. And uh, and we used to for entertainment we used to go around and 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 listen to this guy talk. You know, we just call his house and go, where is he tonight? And we'd jump in the car and we'd go out and hear Norm talk because it was just too much fun. And he always used to say that counters are losers. Counters are losers. I had uh, a sponsor, uh, Fred, who, um, when I started to say that I was too busy, um, uh, you know, I, um, uh, he said, I never know. He said, never know how many people you sponsor. I have no idea how many people I sponsor. I do know that there's a lot of difference between who it is that I think I'm sponsoring and the amount of people who will say OJS is my sponsor. But, you know, it's uh but but the thing is is that he said I only sponsor the next person that's on the telephone. I only sponsor the next person that I'm talking. Yeah. It, well, that way I'm not carrying the weight of all this type of baggage, you know. I mean, so this it's a very heavy load. And uh, so, so what is it that I'm doing in this thing, okay? Now, Bill Wilson, when he had his experience in the hospital, goes running to the Oxford group and starts running around looking for drunks in the Oxford group. When he was not in meetings, he was running up and down Wall Street looking for other guys that were like he was. And then, when that didn't work, he was pulling people off bar stools and talking to him, shaking his finger at him. He did that for six months with hundreds of people. Nobody got sober. Nobody got sober. One night over at dinner, he looks at his wife and said, this is highly overrated. I don't think this, this running around telling people about how to do stuff is going to work. And she said, Bill... You haven't had anything to drink. You know, all that I'm responsible for is carrying the message. And it's the message, it's not the messenger. Now, last night I explained to you about the guy that 12-stepped me. 
Okay? That man, when he talked to me, he was not a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. He'd had a period of 10 years of sobriety at one point, and at another point in his life, he'd had a period of 15 years of sobriety. And yet he wasn't an AA member when he talked to me that day. But that man saved my life with that message. With that message. So all I'm responsible for doing is carrying the message. And, uh, you know, I got to a point in my life where I was very busy and I started doing groups of guys doing the steps together because that way the time got. Another thing, this is really, if you really want to be cruel, here's a great trick. Now what I do is when a guy comes up and asks me to sponsor him, I always say, you know, yes. At first I I, I say, well, we, we need to get together and talk about it. And what I do is I have them go and read Dr. Bob's Nightmare, pay really close attention to the last four pages, and then call me and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. And, uh, and then what I do, because I, I always say yes, is that uh, I say, okay, now what I want you to do is we're going to pray for God to send us another alcoholic. And we'll keep doing that. And what happens is somebody else always shows up, usually rather quickly. One of the funnest stories was I did that with guys showed up at my, my door, 15 years sober, in crisis, wasn't going to AA very much, hadn't sponsored anybody in a while. They bring him in. We talk a little bit. Okay, we're going to go back to meetings. We get down on our knees. We, 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 we pray God send us drunks. We go out to the meeting. A guy sits right down between us. I participate in the meeting the guy writes on a piece of paper, will you sponsor me, and hands it to me. You know? And then I pass the paper to my buddy, and he just fell out. You know? So, I mean, and, and then the other important thing, then, is that, see, the sponsor's important, but what's really more important is the sober friend. Because you always tell the truth to them before you tell your sponsor, right? I mean, because you never really, because you know what they're going to say to you. And you know, you don't want to hear that, so you want to talk to your friend about it first, right? <laughs> but then, so what happens is, is that I got two guys that I'm working with, because when I'm doing it with two guys, they have something that's really important, a common enemy, me. And they work, as, as, they, as we're going through the book and going through stuff, they're able to share honestly about what it is that they're going through, not just about, you know, what it is that they feel like they can share with me. So it's a really good way to get them more involved in AA, but also, you know, to have them from the beginning watch the miracle expand. So I only sponsor the, the next person. I have no idea how many people I've said yes to. I have no idea how many people are sober and how many are drinking. You know, I, I gave you the, the thing about the guy that, that called me off of Facebook, you know. It had been 30 years since I talked to the guy. And he says, is this my sponsor? Now, he hasn't been what I'd call an AA member for a long, long time. But yet he's not drinking. He's got a wife that still speaks to him. He's got children that like him. You know, who am I to say what that is? So, you know, it's not about me keeping track. Me keeping score, it's always going to lose. And remember, 
that these guys that founded this movement that we're part of, Alcoholics Anonymous, they all worked with lots and lots of people that didn't stay. Before the Jack Alexander article came out, in the first five years of this program, there were 150 people sober in a total in the country. So why should it be any different for us? All that we should be doing is just saying yes and trying to carry the message as best we can. I don't feel I have anything to offer. I, you know, I've got a therapist, and they tell me it's time to take care of myself now. You know, I really, I just don't have it's time to go sit down. I love doing that. <laughs> I have. I was at a meeting. Uh, I was at a meeting in a room where we sit in a circle. It was a men's stag noon meeting. And a guy, this actually happened, and the guy said, you know, I've got 16 days. I'm nervous all the time. I'm lonely. I'm crawling out of my own skin. I got a million problems that I don't think I'm going to be able to solve. I don't know what to do. And the next guy in the circle, because we share in a circle, said, I've got 17 days. Keep coming back, man. It gets so much better. <laughs> that actually happened. Uh, and I hear this. I don't have anything to offer. And, and I think um, I think the thing to remember for me is that the big book and the promises says we will not regret the past nor wish to close the door on it. But a little farther down, it says, because no matter how far down the scale we have fallen, we will see how our experience can help others. So one of the reasons I stay clear on the ways that I behaved as an alcoholic is so that when I talk to you, you trust me. And I think that Bill has been really clear with me in my sobriety when things have happened that have been wonderful. I've had wonderful things happen. And when things have happened that have been awful, he has made a point to tell me to pay attention because I have a message of depth and weight that continues into my sobriety. So when someone thinks they have nothing to offer, maybe it's like this. Maybe they got sober and they didn't get a job and a wife and a house right away. Maybe they got a lame job and they worked it for two years. And maybe they live in a little apartment and, and maybe they feel boring, you know. Well, I guarantee you that that experience will help others, that there's somebody else that feels that way. And the thing that we rob ourselves of or each other of is telling the truth about our sobriety. You know, I, I had a moment in a meeting where I said I was going to talk about how wonderful AA had made my life at our men's stag meeting. And uh, it came to me, and I just couldn't do it. And I said, you know, quite frankly, I think AA's bullshit and alcohol's harmless, and I hate you guys. And I was five years sober. And I went home to my house, and there was a message on my machine from Jay, and he goes, hey, it's Jay. AA is bullshit. Alcohol is harmless, but you can't drink. And he, and he hung up. <laughs> and I guess I told the truth, right? And maybe I helped somebody. I know I helped me. But I want you to think about it this way, too. If you're newly sober, or if you're sober for a little while, and you couldn't stop drinking before you came to AA, you have a higher power. By definition, in my heart and in my eyes, you have to have one or you wouldn't be sober. But you may have a higher power that you sometimes think isn't really big enough for your finances. You know, my higher power, I pray and I got sober, but man, I got financial problems. Your higher power is maybe a little too small for that. 
Or my higher power doesn't really, isn't really gonna, I can't turn my marriage over to my higher power. Cause man, it's complicated and it's weird and there's some stuff I did that I haven't said and some stuff she does that I can't tell anybody. And you know, my higher power is too small for that. So if your higher power is too small, my question to you is what are you feeding him? Are you feeding him interaction with alcoholics? Are you getting the spiritual food of rolling up your sleeves with nothing to offer and sitting down with the book and reading with somebody who's just trying to hang on, even though you have nothing to offer with five years sober or two years sober or six months sober or 17 days sober? Because for me, I found when I went out and started working with other people, and Bill always reminds me, you don't have to like these people. You just have to work with them. So the guy that you hate most in the meeting will come up to you and go, will you sponsor me? And you go, yes. <laughs> you know? And you know what? I go sponsor that guy and I grow to include. I don't shrink and exclude. I grow and I include. And my higher power suddenly gets bigger. And he's up for the heavy lifting. So if you think you have nothing to offer... There's two things. One is that you absolutely do. And the second thing is you're probably starving your higher power. You know, one of the great things about Alcoholics Anonymous is we don't give advice in AA. We just stay with our experience. We don't, we don't have anything to do with outside issues. I have some advice for you. Go sit down. <laughs> Well, <laughs> that is fun. Um, one of the great lies is that we don't give advice. Uh, it goes right along with that we don't express our opinions. Uh, if we didn't give advice and express opinions, we wouldn't have a damn thing to say to each other. Um, I'm a new guy in AA. I come to Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm 37 years old. I'm married. I've got two little kids. I've got a business that's in distress. And I've got stress in, in all areas of my life. I'm going home. <clears throat> my wife is not happy to see me. My kids don't really know me. I go to work, and it feels like everybody's talking about me behind my back. Everywhere I go, I'm uncomfortable, and I don't know how to deal with the situation and I hide that because I can't let you know that about me. So I'm just a neurotic ball of shit, you know, going to meetings and trying to go to work, trying to get along every day. I need some advice. When I come to you with a problem that I'm having, I'd like to have a response to that. I'd like you to talk to me like another man, trying to help me through each day. I don't necessarily need you to tell me what to do, but I would really like some advice. Um, some of the things that Jay has said to me, Jay and other people as well as years have gone by, um, he's told me things like I shared last night when I, I came and I said, I don't babysit, and he informed me, it's not babysitting, they're your children. That's advice. That's like, wake up, man, wake up. You know, you're acting like a child. Stop it. Can't you see what it is you're doing? You're acting like a frightened little boy. Now, you can say that to people in a lot of different ways without using those words. You just share your own experience. 
you know. And my own experience, if I've, I'm, I'm 24 years sober, I'm 62 years old, I've had 24 years of sober life experience, and I was paying attention some of the time in the years prior to that. So at this point in my life, if I don't have some advice, if I don't have some wisdom, there's something wrong. You know, if I've been paying attention a little bit, I can really help you in a very practical way. I believe that I have some practical spirituality that I can hand you. I can say more to you than, well, just pray about it. You know, I can say, well, let's pray about it and think about this. You know, now, what kind of advice do we give in AA? The guy comes to you and he says, I think I'm going to marry the nude dancer. And you look at him and you... <laughs> From Lafayette. <laughs> you know? You know? And, uh, or the barefooted fiddle player down on Bourbon Street. She's for me, you know? And uh, so you say to the guy, probably not a good idea. But if you do, I'll come to the wedding, you know? I mean, people have to have their own experience. I can't, just like raising children, I can't protect you from having the experiences that you need. But if you sit down and you talk to me about a problem that you have in your life, I will listen and I'll respond and I'll ask you questions, maybe to help better identify or define the situation that you're in. You know, I, I've been in business a long time. If you've got some financial problems, if you express it to me, if I know something about it, I'd be happy to help you. If you would like to come to my house and I'll help you sit down and fill out a budget for you, you know, to, to help you save some money and get out of debt. And if you've got a bankruptcy problem or something like that, if I know something about that, I'd be happy to help you with that. I'd be happy to spend time with you. If you have other problems and I know somebody that knows something about that, we'll go to that guy and we'll get some advice from a real banker. I know several failed bankers in AA that would be, you know, have a lot of life experience in, in the realm of finance, you know. I know a handful of lawyers. We have a list of the good lawyers and the bad lawyers, you know. It's like, and I'd be happy to send you to Andy for some advice on you, some, some legal advice. You know, of course we give advice. Do we tell people how to live? I think is what that alludes to when it says we don't give advice. No, we don't tell people how to live. I've tried that. I will report to you that they do not listen. Yeah. You know, if Jay gave me some really good advice one time. I had a guy that was going to marry this woman, and she was a nightmare. I mean, literally. I mean, she, this, she was a nightmare. And I couldn't believe. I thought, oh, he'll get over it. It won't really continue. And he's like in love with this woman. And I'm looking at her going, my God, he can't do this. This is a mistake. And I went to Jay and I said, I think I should tell him not to do it. And his advice to me is, never get in between some guy and his woman. You will lose. Don't say it. Don't do it. I couldn't help myself. I mean, I, was so, I wanted to save this guy, you know, from her, you know. And I went to him and I said, Mike, don't do it, man. Don't marry her. You, you shouldn't do this. This is not a good move. And he married her. And, uh, and I lost my relationship with him for a while because of that. I mean, we, we eventually got back together, but it, I mean, it, you know, it was difficult. And of course, he told her that I said that, which really didn't. She has stronger than me. She was stronger. 
And it was a disaster. You know, they were married for a while and it blew up and it fell apart. He met another woman. They've now been married for quite a few years. They bought a house together. She's a school teacher. This guy's living the dream. I mean, he's living the dream. And it became apparent to me he could never have had this relationship he's in if he had not married that other woman. He'd have nothing to compare to because these two women are polar opposites. And he had to have the experience with the hot one, you know, the one that's that lunatic fringe, you know, the exciting one, you know, you know, to really have one that was truly fulfilling. And, and they added something to each other's lives, you know, and you learn from that. So my advice to you is don't ever get in between some guy and his woman. Yeah, I've had these, I had this sponsee, you know, and he wouldn't call me every day and he wouldn't do what I said, so I fired him. Right? I mean, if they don't call you at six o'clock in the morning, that's the time I have to talk and defend him. Get away from them. Sober man. <laughs> they don't, they, we don't hire them. They don't hire us and we don't fire them. Um, who am I? to send someone away. What, you mean, I, oh, and alcohol. I, I remember Bill called me one time. One of his sponsees was drinking. Should I go over there? It was like, Bill, live mini-cam report, an alcoholic not following directions. I mean, come on. <laughs> My job as a sponsor is to be available. Now, I was... Uh, this, I'm taking a cake for 10 years of sobriety in a meeting, and my father comes to give me the cake, drunk. And instead of giving me the cake and letting me talk, he starts talking to the group about how wonderful things are with his boy, how great you are. Weaving. There was a guy, Pat Keelahan, who was at that meeting who was so impressed that he asked me to sponsor him. <laughs> and, uh, and we started out together. Now, Pat was, um, uh, my wife at the time, Jacqueline, said that he was the sleaziest man she ever met in Alcoholics Anonymous. He, was, uh, he had been saying a lot. And, uh, and Pat was a, uh, he was, uh, his parents were Irish immigrants and went to Mass every day and were, you know, they were like Matthews folks and absolutely baffled that they had this flaming alcoholic and drug addict in, in the car, or I mean in the, in the home. And, and Patrick was just a, this is the kind of guy that he was. Uh, he, he traveled a lot. He was in the freight forwarding business, and so he traveled a lot. And so he had a flexible sobriety date, and he'd never let us know. Occasionally, things would blow up, and, you know, he'd get unmasked. But he would do things like uh, uh, we go on retreat the first weekend in December every year, and he'd say, well, I'm going on retreat. And he'd tell his wife, I'm going on retreat. And tell his sponsor, I'm going on retreat. Tell his friends, we're going on retreat. Wouldn't tell Matthew, because Matthew won't go with us yet. Um, but it's still early. Um, and we're... we're uh, 
And, and so we're all waiting for Patrick to show up and Patrick doesn't show up. And, uh, you know, so when I get back, he, he tells me that he was a little busy. I didn't realize that he'd been on retreat himself. He'd gone and bought a couple eight balls and gotten a couple professional women and gone to a, a motel room for the weekend <laughs> in order to get closer to his higher power. <laughs> Who knew? When his wife, one of the things that, that we always do on the retreat is we take a picture so that, you know, in case of emergency, we could always say, no, sweetheart, I really was there. And uh, this was before Photoshop, of course. But, uh, uh, we, we, you know, they're always using the technology. It's amazing. Anyway, um, but Keelahan would say, oh, well, Jay didn't have it. I gave Jay my photograph and all this stuff. And I mean, the guy was, his mother actually called him the devil of all liars. Think about that one. <laughs> so anyway, I work with this guy for years. And um, anytime he you know, wants to get sober again, we, we start doing it. Well, turns out one time he, he finally gets sober. He reaches a crisis. He can't evade, and he finally gets sober. And uh, still we're kind of a shitty program. But he wasn't drinking. He was coming to meetings occasionally, and he was doing some of the things that I suggested to him, and, uh, which is wonderful. And then he's sober a couple of years, and he calls me up, and he says, I'm going to die. <laughs> what? This guy at the time was 40 years old, president of his own company, had a boy seven and a boy nine, and... Uh, and he had a, a a lung cancer that was way up high here, so the the, uh, the normal x-rays didn't get it. And the reason he had it high up here was that he'd done so much cocaine and he was trying to be good to his health and he was uh, uh, smoking uh, light cigarettes. And you'd draw on him so hard that the, <laughs> the heat screwed him up here and that's where the tumor came and they didn't find it anyway. So he started getting sick. And what happened is, is that I found out that I was a real man. I finally learned that if you need me, I can show up. Because what happened is I started going to this guy, with this guy, to the doctors. We'd go to with him when he went to the hospital. We'd go when he'd have the operations. And what happened is, is I learned, and a number of us learned, because we started doing for him what we learn in AA, which is we don't have to solve problems. All we have to do is show up and be there. Mm-hmm. Just, just by our being there, we are being of support. And so we start showing up. One time, I mean, he's really getting sick now. And uh, he's, <laughs> we came to visit him at the hospital one time, and he's obviously throwing up a lung in the bathroom when we get there. And, uh, you know, I'm, what do you do? W- what do you do? So luckily I'd meditated that morning, and I was available for inspiration. So I said, quick, Bill, and we jumped into the hospital bed. <laughs> we pulled the covers up so that when he came out with his tree to climb back in his bed to get a little rest, he looked and he saw the two of us and he started screaming, Nurse! Come here and get these cretins out of my bed! They're horrible! They're killing me! You know? But I mean, you just fuck with them. I mean, what? I mean, you know. And we brought this guy to the meeting every week. You know? And, uh, 
And he ended up passing with dignity and grace and sober as a member of a community, not alone and desperate. And if I would have fired him, see, now in the meeting, like, we, we, those of us who were close to him knew what a, what, a, what a horrible guy he really had been. But like when we talk about Cat, Pat Kay in the meeting now, people think we're talking about some AA saint, you know? <laughs> but the reality is, is that this man changed my life and taught me that I did not have to be afraid in the face of death, that I could go any place that I was asked that I didn't have to have an answer. I was just able to show up. And if I would have fired him for being an irresponsible AA member, I never would have had that experience. So that's why I don't fire him. Got a few minutes for Q and A. Do a couple. Do a couple of questions. Um, what's your opinion on outside issues during shares at an AA meeting? Um, I think that's a, that's a good. I mean, I think first you have to define what's an outside issue. Uh, I have a really good friend in AA that's also a member of CA, uh, Jim H. And uh, Jim says that uh, when he's in an AA meeting, that his use of crack cocaine is not an outside issue, it's an inside issue. <laughs> and uh, uh, he speaks around a lot in AA and in CA, um, as I do. And, and um, when I'm in an AA meeting, and I'm speaking at an AA meeting, I'll talk about the fact that I did heroin and acid and stuff like that, but I don't dwell on it. I don't spend a lot of time. I don't tell you my drug log but I'll tell you that I did that so that you'll know. So if you want to talk to me, you can come and talk to me. You can feel safe to talk to me. But I don't dwell on it. But I also don't not mention it. Um, if I'm sharing in an AA meeting, this is my belief about I believe my sponsor, and I still do to, to this day, that an AA meeting is for recovery from alcoholism, not about how my day went. So what I will share about in an AA meeting generally is whatever the leader has picked as a topic or some thread that I'll pick up in the meeting. I don't normally share about what's going on with me specifically. I'll talk about the step we're sharing on or some aspect of recovery or something of that nature. And in that, I'll talk about my experience with that recovery process, not so much about what happened in the past. AA to me is about now. You know, I'm not, I'm not that interested in where you came from. It's what's going on with you now, what's happening now, and where are you in the process. Now. I've come to AA meetings before when there was a real crisis going on in my life. I've been through uh, interferon a couple of times. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's like chemotherapy. It's, it's horribly distressful. It's, it's very painful. And uh, I went through a lot of emotional crap over that. For a year I was on this stuff. 
And at one point they gave me Xanax to try to help me sleep at night. And I walked into my home group and I go, I got drugs on me now. And I'm afraid. You know, is that an outside issue? No. I'm an alcoholic with a bottle full of drugs. And I want you to know that so that I'm not being a secret. It's not an outside issue. It's what's happening with your brother right here, right now. I would want to know that from you. So I think it's the context in which this stuff is shared. It's how you share about it. You know, if you walk into an AA meeting and you've got an NA t-shirt on and you start talking about shooting heroin and mixing it up in a spoon, well, that's just stupid. You know, you need to talk to somebody. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? Um, one thing about sponsoring guys is you'll sit down with a guy and you find out what his real problem is. And you're sponsoring a guy, because I'll sponsor anybody. I don't care what your problem is. It's irrelevant to me. You know, it doesn't matter to me. Uh, I don't need to identify with you, by the way. And, and hopefully if you pick a sponsor, it isn't somebody that you identify with. They're probably not the right person for you if you're identifying with them. I need somebody that can help me. And if you're sitting and talking to me and I come to find out that you're primarily a crackhead and you hardly drank at all, you need to go to some CA meetings. You know, you need to go to Cocaine Anonymous. And you're more than welcome to come to my AA meeting, but let me tell you what the rules are. And we're not going to change for you. Don't think that we're rigid, you know, because there's lots of places you can go with your specific problem. So don't come and, and poke holes in my lifeboat. Well, you did drugs too. Yes, but I know where I am too. This is Alcoholics Anonymous. This isn't Narcotics Anonymous. It's not Cocaine Anonymous. It's not Overeaters Anonymous. You know, it's, it's AA. And our solution to singleness of purpose is to help anybody start their own program. We will come and help. We will help you do that. So the whole idea of outside issues is the context in which this stuff is shared. If I'm talking about what's going on with me now, I don't really believe there are any outside issues because you're talking about you as a person, and I'm interested in that. And recovery process in Alcoholics Anonymous can combine a lot of different things, and I'm not one that tries to limit that. You know, I, I want to know what's going on with you. A lot of it can be shared one-on-one. -on -one. It does not have to be shared at a group level. There's a lot of stuff that it just doesn't need to be shared at a group level. It doesn't do any good to share it at a group level. But if you've just come from the doctor and he gave you a prescription for Vicodin and you want us all to know, please tell me, because I'll take the bottle from you. Somebody gave us a question, what are your thoughts on steps six and seven? And again, um, what, we're, what we're trying to bring is our experience with kitchen table sobriety and sponsorship, so I was glad to get this um, question because of my experience with it and my experience in sponsoring people with it. I remember when I, the way we do it or the way I was taught to do it is once you heard a fifth step, you show the guy the part in the book where it says, now you go home and you be quiet and you figure out if you've laid a good foundation. And then it leads to the seven-step prayer, right? Um, but the step is, became willing to have God remove my defects of character. And then the seventh step is, ask God to remove these defects of character. And, like, I, I was working on this with a guy who I sponsored, who actually, he's gone now, he committed suicide. But when I uh, told him about six and seven, he just looked right at me and said, you're not taking my porn. <laughs> Like I was going to go home and take his porn from him. But uh, 
he he had this fear and it actually opened up a great conversation because I said, you know, maybe this is the part why six is a separate step. So you can become willing to maybe live a life that doesn't include that. But the seventh step doesn't say then we worked hard and got rid of our, our defective character. It says we asked God to remove them, right? And I have two things that I think about when I think about these steps. One is somebody gave me a prayer book for ministers when I was in the hospital, when I was, you know, 15 days sober. And I kept it for years and years because it had just paragraphs from different books. And that was just enough for me to get. And I'll never forget this one paragraph. And I thought it was about step seven. It said, trying to change your own character through force of will is like trying to fly by repeatedly jumping into the air. We can't fly. And I don't believe I can remove my own defects of character. I believe God can do that when I'm willing to see that there might be a different way to live than the way I live. One of the things that was an experience for me with this is my sponsor, um, the one before Bill, said, if I'm going to sponsor you, you have to do a fifth step with me. And when I did a fifth step with him, he pointed out my modus operandi. He said, do you see how that resentment is just like the one three times ago? Do you see how you manipulate women? Do you see how you lie so that you look better, so you position yourself, and then this happens and that happens? And it was very illuminating. For one thing, it's because I wasn't brand new sober. I was sober a couple years, and some of these things had to do with being sober. Like, you know, your first fifth step, you can always go, I did all these awful things, but I was loaded. (laughs) But two years in, you're like, yeah, well, I was sober, and I'm still doing these things. And he pointed out this behavior, and I had a spiritual experience when I went with the book. I read up to there. I looked at my modus operandi, and I was going to ask God to remove these defects of character. And I thought, I actually thought, if I'm not these things, what will I be? Because that's how I've always lived. That's where I was comfortable. So I had to really say, I don't know. I had to step into the unknown in the seventh step and say, God, I'm now willing that you have all of me. And I trust that what you're going to do with me is better than these things. I have to trust that. And finally, I'll just say Sandy Beach is one of my favorite speakers. And he does a lot of great work on step six and seven. One of the things that sticks into my mind, and I don't know why, is somebody told him that they had uh, written each character defect, like the seven deadly sins, on you know a little card or a little block. And they had this bowl and they would take one every day and work on it. And they take, you know, honesty or whatever, sloth. I'm going to be not slothful. They put it in their pocket and they're going to work on not being slothful. Now, I was raised in the Catholic Church and I was raised in Catholic school by nuns, you know. And my experience with trying to work on my character defects is I make them grow and grow and grow. I start wrestling with something and it gets stronger and I'm focused on it. It's bigger. And this person who was taking a character defect, sloth or whatever it was, gluttony or lust and putting it in their pocket and they were going to work on it that they had that experience so sandy said why don't you take them all out of the bowl put them on your desk and in the morning pick the one you're going to leave in the bowl and leave that character defect and go out and do your day that's what my thoughts on six and seven matthew referred to uh to our friend Sandy. Um, We are part of a movement, you know, I was talking about the history, um, that 
that is an oral tradition and go out and find people that you admire. Go out and find men and women to emulate. I talked yesterday about taking people that that, that I admired in AA when I was four or five years sober and taking them out to lunch and asking them to talk about themselves. There's nothing an alcoholic loves to do more than talk about themselves. So, you know, you go and you feed them a little and just sit back. You throw them the keys and watch them drive. It's no big deal. But it's really fun because there's this generosity of spirit that we have within the movement. And uh, so... There are folks that have been around a while. They've heard these. We were talking earlier about people like uh, Ray O'Keefe. You know, these for folks that passed away. About Norm Alpe. These these folks that that helped make this a big Chuck Chamberlain. This thing that people that really founded this thing that we call Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, they are not the light. All they are is a window. Some of the windows are maybe a little bigger than others. Maybe some of them just got recorded. But anyway, they're wonderful, wonderful people. And find these kinds of folks. Uh, my question is, what f- time framework should one have for working the steps? We've heard about people that say a step a year. We have a good friend who said, who used to say, you stay on the first half of the first step for the first year. That's a really long year. <laughs> um, you know, I uh, I was into step nine in, in four weeks. Um, and you can always go back. You can always go back. You know, you just do the best you can where you are. And uh, uh, we had, had another wonderful uh, mentor, a guy by the name of Clint Hodges. Clint had a great line. He said, you know, it only takes two weeks to write a fourth step. And when I send people, when I give people the instructions on writing an inventory, that's what I tell them. You know, go home, sit down, say the fourth step prayer. God, I don't know what I'm doing. Help me, please. And then write something on the piece of paper. My name is Jay. You know, just to get it going. Because otherwise you'll just look at the paper and the pencil and go, I've got some better looking paper over here and I'd really rather use a pen and some people told me crayons work well. I'll go buy some crayons. And, you know, you never get the thing written. And he says that it only takes two weeks. Now, with some folks, it takes six months and two weeks. With other people, it takes three months and two weeks. Some people, it takes five years and two weeks. But it only takes two weeks to write the inventory. And so you just go and you sit for an hour and you write each day for just an hour. And at the end of two weeks, come back and, you know, do do your fifth step with me. Now, and all the people that I gave that experience, that that advice to, maybe four of them came back and did the inventory within two weeks. But when I used to give them the the, the instruction without a time frame, it could be two years. You give them two weeks, and you know they start sweating at ten days, and so maybe they're there at day twenty-two. Huge, huge, you know, instead of just waiting for it. So anyway, there's there's that. We had a friend, Frank Priest, who uh, died with uh, long, long-term sobriety, and he used to scream and pound the podium, say the F word a lot, and he'd say, if you're not working a step a month, you are full of it. Where do you think you are? Not a bad idea. Not a bad idea. 
But the thing is, is that you have to get in motion. Uh, the old line is, is that a rudder in a boat only works when the boat is moving. You gotta push off from the dock. You have to actually get into the process of working it. And I've never, uh, seen a, a case where somebody got too well too quick. You hear a lot, oh, don't get too well too quick. Those are the people who usually haven't finished doing their amends. <laughs> but I judge no man. Uh, so anyway, the thing is, is getting off, getting off and getting into this, this flow and then letting it help. Another thing that I'd like to make a pitch about is step 11. Step 11, you can start now. Now, this is what we do in my home. This is spiritual terrorism. It's a way to really be cruel to people because they don't know. Great thing about people that are new is they don't know what they don't know. So you can tell them the truth, and they think that everybody's doing it, and it's cool. But step 11, you know, this prayer and meditation. So any time that any alcoholic, because I know you can't believe this, but no mild cases of alcoholism ever end up coming through our front door in my house. My wife gets horrible, horrible alcoholic women to work with, and you can see what I get. Hopeless. Anyway, um, so when they come, the first thing we do is we sit down and we meditate for three minutes. Just start them off, and when we end, we meditate for three minutes. If you call me, and I really want, you know, I'm giving out my phone number today, you can call me. But when you call... If it's at all possible, the first thing I'm going to say is, let's be quiet for three minutes. Now, if you've been sober a little while, it really takes the emotional energy of the call and ratchets it way, way down, and you're able to start really dealing on some kind of emotional thing instead of, or some kind of spiritual plane instead of listening to their emotion and fear for five, ten minutes before they slow down and actually take a breath so you can say something to them. But anyway, and then we do, when we get off the call, we do the same thing. My wife and I, because I work out of the house and she's retired, we, uh, when she gets a call from one of her sponsees or I get a call from one of mine, I'll say, you know, it's, it's John and she'll say, great. And she'll come and we'll set the phone down and then the three of us meditate. And then when I'm done, I'll say, hey, we're getting done. And if she can, she'll come out and join us. Well, we get a lot of calls in the house. We can get a, we can get 40 minutes of extra of meditation a day just in doing this process with people that are calling in. So it's a way not of in, only of, of teaching by doing, because that's what Alcoholics Anonymous is. It's not this thing. It's, it's this thing. It's that we are nothing but a, but a group of equals. You know, why is it that the three of us are here? The only reason that we're here is is that we tell stories. And we learn to tell our story in such a way that people have invited us. But it's not because we hold any particular insight. We're just sober guys that have been active and, and, and been along. And, and so this is just what God has done with us. I mean, it's not like this is some kind of package that we've put together and, and gone out and marketed in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, we like gumbo. Yeah. <laughs> and there's... Yeah, let's meditate on the smells that are coming from there. I mean, that's a wonderful... You know, I mean, have you ever done a smelling meditation? I mean, it's a wonderful... Kevin Zinn, you know? 
But, uh, uh, you know, so anyway, this, this thing about that it's not about telling somebody what to do. It's about showing them what to do. And so how do you get more spiritual in AA? It's you just show people what's worked for you. I believe that we should pray and meditate the way you drank and used. What? Well, you know, I mean, when you're out in the bar and somebody gives you a pill, do you ever say, oh, what is it? No, you just eat it and then go, which way am I going? Right? And then you, you, ooh, that's good. Or, oh, I don't like that so well, you know? And so you find out what you enjoy mixing together. Well, with prayer and meditation, it's the same. Just keep trying stuff. There's all kinds of disciplines. There's all kinds of different ways to do it. And you try it until you find something that, 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 that works with you. Not something that you intellectually agree with, but something that, that really fits. But you have to try stuff. You have to try stuff. And so the only caveat about that, the only caution I want to give you is, if you're ever around people and they tell you that Alcoholics Anonymous is a lower form of spirituality, look them dead in the eye and agree with them. Because you'll never win the argument. And agree with them and just back slowly towards the door. Because they don't know. They're not bodily and mentally different. They're never going to know. And you can't convince them. So you just agree with them. And just know for yourself that in Alcoholics Anonymous, what we do, not what we tell, but what we do and what we show and what we share is what every spiritual master ever says to do. Which is that we feed the sick. We clothe the naked, we go to the hospitals, we go to the prison. And as, as, as Matthew said, what we do in Alcoholics Anonymous is we raise the dead. That's what we do. And, uh, and it's a wonderful, exciting life. And it is the ultimate spirituality. Once you've had the experience, and it doesn't happen every time, but once you've had the experience of sitting there at the table turn in the pages of the big book and the light goes on in somebody's eyes and they go, oh my God, this might work for me. I'm going to try this and then watch that grow. And that is seeing the light come on. That is the spiritual regeneration. That is the rebirth. That is what we get. And we get it for fun and for free, and we get to do it all the time. And once you've seen it, you realize why it is that we keep going to these silly meetings. I think it's lunchtime, isn't it?